This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by The Witness, a Black Christian Collective. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. Follow at your own risk. And normally this would be the part of the show where I would kick it to my co-host, Mr. Blue Check Verified, Jamar Tisby. But because he is Mr. Blue Check Verified, he is not on the podcast this week doing things that verified people do. So fair warning, I'm without supervision on this podcast. So proceed at your own risk. Uh, but we just want to personally thank all of our wonderful listeners for supporting us in large and small ways, our patrons who sponsor the podcast on patreon.com, and all those, everyone who shared uh, each of these episodes, who's passed it along to a friend, who's recommended it within their church. Thank you so much for what you do. Pass the Mic exists because you listen and because you share. And we would love to thank you in person, actually. Our first tour stop on the PTM Live Tour, it's rapidly approaching. And as most of you know, we're going to see Black Panther, the movie event of the year, all together on Saturday, February 17th in my hood, my city, Pensacola, Florida. And people have been talking about Pensacola. They're like, it's not Dallas, it's not LA, it's not Chicago, blah, blah, blah. Okay, whatever. Pensacola is an amazing city. It's paradise. And I look forward to seeing you guys there with us at the Black Panther event. We're going to have a, a great discussion after we watch the movie over some good food, some food that you are going to like. And also we're going to be recording a podcast. It's going to be an epic experience and you can click the Eventbrite link in the episode description and you can get your tickets today. Bring your friends, bring your cousin and them, bring your auntie and them, all your family. And we look forward to seeing you on the first stop of the PTM live tour. Now we're releasing this episode at the beginning of Black History Month. And recently I was reflecting on the reality that we as Black people are a complex, diverse uh, group, and we have much to offer the world. And I hope in the midst of the celebration that we don't tokenize our accomplishments, that we don't simply insinuate that Black people have personhood uh, because of our utility, because of what we can contribute to the broader scope of humanity. I hope we remember that Black people have personhood because of who created us. And someone who I think embodies that complexity and talks about it in really glowing ways is our guest today, the Reverend Dr. Kenyatta Gilbert. He is one of my homiletical heroes. Um, he is the Associate Professor of Homiletics at the Howard University School of Divinity. He is the author of a, a number of books, uh, The Journey and Promise of African-American Preaching, which I have referenced on this podcast before. He also wrote A Pursued Justice, Black Preaching from the Great Migration to Civil Rights. And his forthcoming book is Exodus Preaching, Crafting Sermons on Justice and Hope. You can follow him on Twitter at Preaching Proj or at Preaching P-R-O-J. And Dr. Gilbert is a phenomenal voice with much wisdom for the church today. 
And in this interview, we talk about his favorite sermons, black preaching as an art form that edifies the church and is a witness outside. You saw how I put that in there, a witness outside of the church. Uh, We also talk about the church in the age of Trump. And of course, we have to touch on evangelicalism as well. It's a timely, insightful conversation. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Dr. Kenyatta Gilbert. It is both humbling and exciting that I have the privilege of welcoming Dr. Kenyatta Gilbert to pass the mic. Dr. Gilbert, it is an honor to have you on this podcast. Oh, it's a great pleasure. Thank you for having me. Now, remind me, Dr. Gilbert, how long have you been a professor at Howard Divinity School? Uh, Believe it or not, this is year 12. Wow. Okay, so over a decade. So you've seen the shifts and changes and you've, you've... taught a lot of students and, and seen those different things. So for those who are unfamiliar with it, can you can you tell us a little bit about the institution and, and some of its goals? Sure. Howard uh, University was um, started in 1867. And um, the university has, has a divinity school that um, was a part of its very beginnings. And in that formation through the congregational church, which was, you know, kind of its denominational heritage, mm-hmm. uh, it began to to spawn. And there are several, several uh, moves and relocations. Um, and we are presently in a fairly new um, space where we share our West Campus with the uh, School of Law. Now, oh, wow. Yes. So... We have about 15 uh, full-time faculty, and um, we just welcome newly installed uh, a dean, uh, Dr. Yolanda Pierce, who comes to us Excellent. from Princeton Seminary. And so we're very excited about the renaissance that's taking place, um, again, across the theological school's spectrum. There has been su- sufficient decline in, in enrollment, and um, we are uh, certainly... Uh, in recruitment mode. And so uh, I've spoken with you. <laughs> oh, here about, we go. <laughs> about trying to uh, hook you. Yes, sir. And um, Howard is just a great place. It's uh, uh, extremely diverse uh, religiously. Mm-hmm. Well, ecumenically, I should say. Right. Um, right. And um, we, we're doing um, our work and hopefully producing wonderful um, graduates who will serve the church and society. And so in, in hearing that you have Dr. Pierce as the new dean, it just brings up just a, a point to mention that you do allow women to teach at your seminary, oh, at your divinity absolutely. school. <laughs> <laughs> right. That was just a little a little tidbit for the for the evangelical wars there. Uh, Jamar isn't here to, to keep me in line, so I'm just going to be myself. <laughs> the boss is okay, away, so, okay. so I can be myself oh, uh, fully. Yeah. But but it occurred to me that since we have a world-class homiletician on the podcast, it would just be remiss if I didn't ask you about some of your favorite sermons. Now, are there one or two sermons, uh, maybe even more than that, that you've heard that are definitive for you that you'll never forget? Right. Well, of course, um, at the summit of sermons uh, would be Martin King's Mountaintop sermon, and I refer to it as a sermon and not a speech because of its kind of classic traits of of the sermon. And, um, and though it was kind of delivered in a context, well, actually it was delivered in a context native to 
um, to worship. Um, uh, I have categorized it as a sermon, though not um, in some sense uh, expository, but um, mm-hmm. more top, more topical. Uh, but uh, it it stays with me. It sticks with me. And I've done uh, a bit of research on the nature and function of it. Uh, Prathia mm-hmm. Hall's sermon, Between the Wilderness and the Cliff, uh, is also wow. an amazing uh, sermon about ministry identity. And it picks up the themes that ground my work in Luke chapter 4, 16 through 21, Jesus' Jesus's inaugural vision and how um, and how that vision in and of itself uh, invited uh, hostility uh, and, and instead of hospitality. My good friend and brother, who now um, is Duke University's uh, first African American dean of chapel, has preached a sermon uh, entitled "The Other Jesus," which kind of inverts. Hmm. Uh, or flips the script of how we uh, put Jesus in a box. And we don't right, allow right. ourselves enough theological imagination to to see Jesus in many multi multifaceted ways, I should say. Now, my father was um, a Baptist preacher uh, in Waco, Texas, and um, right, he's long right. uh, deceased now. It's it's uh, about. A decade now, I would say. Well, actually, I'm sorry, 20 years. Um, and so um, as a child, while I didn't appreciate kind of his homiletical gifts and wit um, as much as I do today, there was a sermon he preached entitled Anyhow God, which which was hmm. a message simply about a God who meets us with mercy and, and healing uh, in spite of all the... Um, the things to be overcome in this life. Uh, he was uh, right. physically um, disabled. He preached the gospel from his mm. wheelchair from Sunday to Sunday. Wow. <laughs> so, My um, goodness. So the suffering life he knew very well. And I have um, developed an appreciation for persons who minister the gospel in spite of, uh, of suffering. Harry Wright. I don't know if you know that name. He uh, was a former. It sounds familiar. Former pastor of the Cornerstone Church in uh, Brooklyn. Uh, he preached a sermon not long ago at the E.K. Bailey conference in Dallas. Uh, it was an amazing sermon. It was uh, taken from the Psalms. I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor, yes. nor his seed begging bread. Um, and in classic narrative style, he did not. Um, announce his title that night. <laughs> so, ah. uh, but it was just an amazing sermon on uh, what it means to grow in wisdom um, and fret not because of all of the calamity and chaos we, we see today. Um, so it's a very, very encouraging word for, for ministers. So those are, wow. Th- those, <laughs> that's a list. That's quite a list. Yeah. You know, I was I was thinking about this question and one of the there are two sermons that kind of came to mind that were definitive in my life. Um, one that I, I've I was personally present for and then another that uh, I found through research. And the first one would be Dr. Gardner Taylor's um, A Wide View Through a Narrow Lens. Mm-hmm. I believe that's that's what it's okay. called. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and it's it's the sermon on Job 19. Um, I know my redeemer lives, and it's um, it's very fascinating. Yeah. And it to me to me it's a perfect sermon because it puts so much in in so little and it has so many signature lines, right. and it he kind of shows the the broad range of Doctor Taylor and um, with the signature dialogue, the economy of words, all those things that make him yeah. him. And then the second one is um, the second one is one that was actually last year. My father eulogized his his eldest brother. I'm the son of a preacher as wow. well. And uh, he was the first of the eight siblings to pass. And his name was Marshall. And I've never, I've never heard my dad preach this way in the midst of such grief. Mm. Um, You know, and he was being strong and he was kind of being the rock of the family and, and, and trying to be strong for, for all the other siblings and family members who were there mourning. But uh, he did something at one point I've, I had never heard him do before. Mm. And it was kind of like one of those one of those times where you just wake up, and you go, like, "Wow, you know, I'm, I grew up under a brilliant um, preacher." He took Marshall, which means lover of horses, and connected the fact my father actually owns horses, and connected Marshall, lover of horses, to the white horse in oh Revelation my. nineteen, wow. and it was. <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly how I responded. I was just like, what in the world? I I mean, you know, and, and having studied preaching and, and that kind of being the thing that I, that I enjoy doing, um, that, that I feel the Lord has called me to, it was one of those moments where it, I, was, I was looking around to see if people understood how big of a moment, how significant and holy yeah. of a moment it was uh, that he was preaching hope in the midst of grief and hope in the midst of suffering. And, you know, I ask these questions because Black preaching, it's often experienced rather than explained. And there's this theater and suspense that makes listening to it just very unique. So how would you define Black preaching? Like, what what's a definition of Black preaching, if there even is one? Because there's such a, a broad range of styles and craft and, and history. You're absolutely right. You know, um, before I give you my working definition, and I, I say it's a working definition because... Uh, being definitive uh, about what it is is in many ways elusive. Um, you know, some would say, mm-hmm. you know, it's theatrical, performance-driven, energetic, bombastic, showy, you know, soul-stirring, ornamental, and certainly Jesus-centered. And, you know, if you were to visit any number of black congregations in the United States um, as a first-timer, then that uh, description or those descriptions would probably be a fair deduction. Um, I mm-hmm. um, I think, however, that such deductions that um, center on the performative um, are in many ways deficient when you're trying to um, hmm. project an appropriate picture of the nature and function of black preaching. And so while you can talk about techniques and approaches and modes and styles um, that that sit under the canopy of black preaching um, and contrasting it with, you know, European or Euro-American or non-European forms of preaching, the culture, I think, uh, needs a more robust definition or description that I think is centered in the, the, the biblical witness. So. When I say African-American 
preaching. I also have uh, called it trivocal preaching. Yes, I love that. I love that description. Yeah, so so for me, it's a ministry Christian proclamation. It's a theoretical God speech about God's will, goodwill toward community with regard to divine intentionality. That is what God intends and God expects of God's human creation, communal care, and the active practice of hope. Um, that finds resources internal to black life in the North American context. Um, and while preaching does its work irrespective of racial ethnic category, um, I think that there is something to say about uh, a gospel that is not prejudice free. So right, right. You know, we filter um, through the lens of context and cultural context. Yeah, you wrote a, a book entitled The The Journey and Promise of African-American Preaching. Right. And I have to say, there's something special about that book, Dr. Gilbert. Some books are written for the mind and, and then some are, are written for the soul. Uh-huh. And I remember I was I was on a plane reading the book and it felt like my soul was being churned. Like it felt like the book was was hitting me in the gut. And it felt there was something about it. It was like a gravity about it. So when you wrote it, was there something particular going on where you, I don't know, there just felt like something special. It wasn't, wasn't as academic as much as it was very pastoral in its care for the people it was addressing. Was, was there something unique about that writing project? Yeah, you know, it's, it is the foundational wisdom that has been deposited in me. I think that's the best way to say it. And then, you know, as I open the book, I open it um, in in a narrative type of way. So I right. chronicle my my own biography as I've discerned what it means to to preach and how I resisted, as many uh, <laughs> resist myself included. <laughs> and uh, but I really wanted to say a word of 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 uh, critique uh, of my own tradition. I, I think we're yeah. not sufficiently self critical. And, yes. and so um, that was a part of it. But I did not want to demean our tradition. I wanted to to get to throw light on it, uh, to see it's the beauty of it, but also to see um, the burden that uh, black preaching has to to uh, to remain relevant to um, mm-hmm. our social social um, context today. And right. and um, and. To be quite honest, I I had uh, several goals in mind uh, when I uh, wrote it. So I was wor- working uh, on it, thinking about the working preacher, the local working preacher. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about uh, homiletics professors. I was thinking about um, uh, seminarians um, who uh, had not sufficiently been uh, introduced to texts that um, were not considered, quote unquote, uh, supplemental to the leading text in preaching. or um, And so in some ways, too, I don't know if you discerned it, Tyler, there was a somewhat of a bone to pick. <laughs> yes, and, um, I did. <laughs> and um, I, I, I really wanted to say that um, the scant slate of those texts that have been used in seminaries across the country, the scant slate of those written from the perspective of one um, um, 
one minoritized in, in our culture, uh, it became more of a challenge to me to kind of convey uh, the significance of a tradition that has meant so much to the formation mm. and development of Christianity uh, mm. nationally and internationally. Right, right. No, I, I definitely picked up on that. And it's it's very unique. It's a very unique book. I feel differently about it than, than other books on preaching. And, and I feel like there was something groundbreaking about it. And you talk about just kind of how the preaching moment within the black church is central. There's there's something about it that's different. How do those things differ from from evangelicalism and how preaching would be perceived within kind of a, a, a stereotypical Americanized Christian and, and even culturally white context? Right, right, right. Um, <clears throat> yeah, that's a, that's a fabulous question. <laughs> well, for, for me, um, there's no more, there's no activity more characteristic of the church than preaching. And so, yes. you know, just starting from that um, that perspective and trying to really um, address the question of what has formed the particular witness of 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 black preaching. And um, mm-hmm. I love the word witness, by the way. Love that. Thank you. <laughs> I wonder why. I wonder why. <laughs> we just had to throw that in there. I love it. I love it. But I'm sorry. Continue. I just had to say. Yeah, so, you know. Um, Traditionally, what has formed the faith identity or the particular witness um, is centered around the doctrine of creation, the concept of Imago Dei, uh, the symbolic significance of the Exodus narrative, which is, uh, and we'll probably talk a little bit about it later on, um, the subject matter or the title of my my forthcoming book, um, and then talking about uh, the redu- redemptive nature of uh, the sufferings of Christ, the messianic witness of Christ mm-hmm. being uh, central to um, black religious practice. And finally, um, eschatology and thinking about um, mm-hmm. what that means in respect to hope and the kingdom of God. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, from that standpoint, uh, if one can um, think about that rooting um, in contrast to what I have also uh, tried to, to give some description um, mm-hmm. in that work and in subsequent works about the nature of evangelicalism, um, not as a denomination, but as a movement mm-hmm. that um, mm-hmm. was reactive, actually. You know, it was yes. reacting to Protestant liberalism in ways that I think... Um, Probably over overextended itself as far as you know. Uh, <laughs> I would agree. I would one hundred percent agree. Yeah, and yes. so, what it has done, it has diminished certain the whole council of scripture in ways, and has kind of aligned itself with the political agenda that has not served communities of color very well. Right. Absolutely. And and, and even even thinking about that in, in contrast to to black preaching. It seems like there's there's a lot of nuance given to evangelicalism, but not a lot of nuance given to black preaching. So it, it's often judged by its extreme. So so on one hand, you have Dr. King who kind of proliferated this image of what a black right. preacher is and what black preaching is. And because he did it so well and captured the conscience of a nation, it kind of 
looms large over all black preaching now. So people think it's that's that's it. And then there's on the on the flip side, there's uh, you know this televangelism <laughs> stream, uh, which I'm okay. very familiar with, you know, coming from my tradition. And so that that televangelism stream that's that's even a, a, a different type sure. of caricature of of the black preaching. And so people just see those mm-hmm. two poles. And how does that flatten the nuance and the complexity of black preaching? Because if you take a few elections ago with with uh, Reverend Jeremiah Wright and that situation as it relates to what people perceive right. to be radical, what people perceive to be um, outside of the bounds of what's Christianity, I, I feel like those those extremes mm. tend to flatten maybe a more common you know expression yeah. of black preaching, which which would disrupt, which would be a bit. Um, off-putting for people who are not familiar with it. Can you talk a little bit about that that nuance and why it's it's necessary, even as we we listen to black preaching and, and view the black church in general? Right. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> that no. That's that's uh, fantastic. One one of the things that I would say about King is is that while he is iconic for his preaching and oratory, um, it was he was not widely embraced at least. You know, from a theological standpoint, <laughs> yes. if you were to kind of um, um, deconstruct his preaching life, uh, much of what um, he integrated in uh, into his sermons would not would not bode well, even in the event, some evangelical black evangelical spaces today. Uh, we tend right. to yes. um, honor kind of his uh, political views in relative to. Uh, equality, uh, dethroning, racial uh, discrimination. Um, however, um, I I think by and large in the wider community, the tra- tradition's capacity to overcome typecast and caricature uh, it remains an enduring problem. Uh, so, hmm. um, wow. Based on, I would say since since I was a child, you know, I grew up in hooping culture. <laughs> So, uh, yes. Yeah. Explain that. Explain that for people, because some uh, people are not familiar with that. They're familiar with kind of a, a different expression. Can you explain sure. hooping so, culture so when we say that? Hooping is kind of um, um, moving the message uh, from a deliberate kind of slow cadence into more of a chanting rhythm that... Um, moves yes. in in somewhat of an uh works in a way that uh encourages uh this kind of ecstasy in in the performance itself so many see it as derived and i would say it's derived from more call and response the antiphonal um traditions where um the preacher and congregation are simultaneously preaching Hooping has taken on a cat. Generally speaking, those who hoop well are those who can sing as well. <laughs> so, <laughs> come on, let me tell you that is so true because I don't have the hooping in me, and I've tried and it doesn't work. So I'm just y'all. We burned the tapes. We deleted them off of YouTube. But if you, <laughs> but there's 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 attempts that I made to even incorporate the song in that I just it, it you have to have all vocals of that, and, all of that oh my um, goodness uh, comes into play. But I do think it's it's more artful 
than mm-hmm. it is yes. um, in its contemporary expression, than it is wholly substantive. Now, there is a particular genius in it. Right. I deny that, but there is there is the performative. Also, uh, sometimes the stylistic overshadows the uh, the substantive, and um, an unfortunate that's an unfo- yes. unfortunate reality. Um, but you know, if the content is there, I even I even give my students space if, in fact, it. Um, it seems honest to the moment to to develop kind of a cadence in mm-hmm. their their own preaching. Um, of course, naturally, in uh, the preaching classroom, it's more of a sterile space. So, so learning how to right, preach when right. you're not getting that uh, talk back, um, I, think, I think, is a, uh, <laughs> um, really important as well. So that one uh, more versatile. Absolutely. Now, we just spent a a little bit, probably 20, 25 minutes talking about preaching and talking about black preaching in specific. And it's interesting because a lot of people would perceive black preaching to becoming Mm. to become more and more irrelevant just due to the rise of kind of a, a hip hop culture. And I've heard you even say before, there's there's this general suspicion with institutions in general. So there's this there's suspicion as it relates to the church and the black church within its community. And so it is what would you say to the people who would say black preaching as an art form, as a craft and as a centrality of the black church is becoming irrelevant? I mean, has hip hop made it irrelevant to the millennial generation? Have these other things that grabbed our attention you know, lessen the power of black preaching in your perspective? No, that's, that's another great question, Tyler. I, um, what I find is that we, um, are not, and when I say we, I would, I would say from the Gen Xers backwards, uh, not Mm -hmm. really sufficient listeners to the ways in which hip hop really is a truth telling or can be a truth telling device that um, speaks a particular witness to the social de- decay in the urban environment. Uh, yes. Um, specifically. And um, I think being attuned to what the culture is listening to is key. Uh, you know, he- hearing music in of, of every genre, you know, would help the preacher to stay attuned to the affairs of the human heart. And hmm. uh, if we are not, if we're not careful, our ways of 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 doing theology in the pulpit in the institution proper can come, become idolatrous. Um, and, and so, mm-hmm. while I don't think preaching will ever be irrelevant because the gospel itself um, does not need human confirmation to uh, render it effective. Um, I do believe that um, if we are going to establish a hearing for the gospel, then we have to re we have to revise our uh, methods uh, in ways that mm. address kind of some of the questions and concerns of of millennials and um, those who are trying to understand millennials. And, and I think even the way that I framed that question. Kind of buys into this this trope, and it's it's kind of more how has hip hop affected preaching, 
rather than <laughs> how has preaching affected hip hop, right? Like it's it's just kind of the flipping it on its head because our paradigm is just to see, well, how is this art form uh, that our young people and the people we're trying to to reach with a gospel, quote unquote, um, h- how are they how are they perceiving us in light of that? Rather than what can we learn from what we're hearing? Amen. What can we learn? Amen. And so there's there's this connection between truth telling and music, truth telling and the church, and especially in today's climate, truth telling is is vitally important. Sure. So I'm just curious, how, how do you believe that the church should Continue to tell the truth as we interact with the moment of of Trumpism and the rise of the alt right and all these things that are are pressing us in uh, from the outside is a very tense moment in the country. How how should the church interact and engage um, in that moment, particularly churches of color? Right. Right. Well, you know, there are some hip hop artists, preachers who... um, kind of major in the lending lending prophetic messaging in melodic meter if you will and so if the if the if the church mm. for example cannot sit with the music of a lecrae for example and uh and think mm. about kind of what it what exactly is uh, he getting at in his his lyrics and how has his own evolution as a hip hop artist uh, instructive or pedagogical for preachers who refuse right. to um, evolve? <laughs> uh, hmm. and so wow, you know one has to really be um, self critical and scrutinize um, her or his own homiletical imagination. Um, if if um, they are to uh, to establish some inroad into uh, into what we are um, currently faced with, right? And and pre- and you know, quite honestly, um, I just think that we have um, we have so much anti intellectual bias in the church, hmm. um, as as well as kind of this. Uh, unhealthy embrace of of evangelical doctrine hmm. um, without kind of this um impulse to revive well i l- let me let me say it this way so other than revising in a performant informative way performative way uh in many churches particularly in the south these are these are methods that have not been sufficiently scrutinized. Right. I mean, you think about what we adopt into the canon of um, our curricula um, in our churches. Not much of that is kind of a radical departure from the um, wisdom of the 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 African, for example. Like right. how do we how do we embrace truth, but also see um, our work as um, as theologians or p- pulpit theologians and local theologians, um, a work of in- integrating theological views that um, are more fitting to our existential reality. Right, right, fitting to the context. Absolutely, that's that's very fascinating. I think because um, 
you know, it seems that there there is a movement within the church to there's these polls again, and I know we've even talked about this this whole idea of you know conservative and and liberal. You know, what what does that even mean? Right. Um, but there are there are these extremes, and there's there seems to be kind of two ways people are going, mm-hmm. and that's pressing into the prophetic impulse of the scriptures, and then another way is, is stepping back from that. Okay. And kind of blending in and assimilating into kind of an Americanized or Westernized expression of the gospel. Mm. What what makes us step back? What what in your view is making us? Is it is it financial gain and achievement? Is it uh, maybe a, a misunderstanding and misapplication of doctrine? What's making the church silent? Um, or I should say, what's making the American evangelical church silent in a time like this? Ah, wow. I think, and I know I'm, I'm asking you a lot here. I'm asking yeah, no, I'm giving no, you that's, that's order. Yeah, that's that's big. That's a big question. <laughs> but um, you know, I would I would say that um, in many ways, evangelicals, white evangelicals. Uh, have uh, hijacked um, the messaging. So hmm. if, if you think about kind of the revival period or, around the time of the Great Awakening, um, which comes on the heels of of the uh, colonial North American period where uh, slaves by and large were, the enslaved were by and large illiterate and the early, earliest missionary movements just didn't have a lot of traction because uh, it did not resonate with the Africans' um, um, religious sensibilities. Now, right. uh, the Great Awakenings provided something very distinct uh, religiously that um, that that did not require um, a lot of theological translation. So mm. you know, these 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 persons our African ancestors were not blank slates. They had a vision mm-hmm. and a, a grounding in a God who um, controls the universe. And so the rhythms of evangelicalism or the movement itself um, had resonance. The problem was, is you, you, whites were not willing to, to, to actually honor the message of uh, uh, preaching a good news message proclaiming the liberty of the gospel. So yes. slave auto, slaves automatically understood the contradiction. And when you think about, quote unquote, purebred theology, mm-hmm. um, there's no such thing. There's no such thing. And the slaves never embraced um, evangelical Christianity uh, in toto. They uh, were able to reshape it, remake it um, in a way that... Uh, suited their particular um, right. um, re, re, reality. Uh, and so when you think about it, the African slave or enslaved, I, I have to get that right, enslaved African um, right. lived into the spirit of evangelicalism in ways in which their white counterparts did not. That is that is very fast hijacked. Wow, that is very fascinating, yeah. uh, and I think an, an appropriate word um, to explain kind of the ways in which we we've kind of adopted a bit of that that impulse where it's not native to us right. and wouldn't have been native to 
our ancestors. And, and so is that how you're viewing the evangelical moment right now? Because, you know, and I don't want to spend too much time talking about it, but the reality is it looms large when it has such political implications uh, and when it has when it has social implications and when there is policy attached to elections, Mm -hmm. it, 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 we cannot avoid it. There's no way for us to get around it. Um, What, what, what is the next movement that you're seeing rise up within communities of color, within black churches from black theologians Mm -hmm. that is kind of, that is countering it because uh, it's, it feels that there's a groundswell of, uh, some of the anti-institution element sure. <laughs> um, that has kind of creeped into the critique sure. of evangelicalism. So the question is, will there be another institution mm. and will there be a, a counter institution that rises up in parallel right. um, to the, or, or movement that rises up in parallel to um, the evangelical movement that continues to have roots in certain places in the country? Is there a movement similar to that? Is is there something that you believe is coming? Yes, uh, you know, I I I, I sincerely do, um, but I think it will be incremental in some ways, um, because I think those who uh, have expressed the most rage um, are not as sufficiently theologically grounded, and, hmm. and so um, there has to be this kind of intergenerational cooperation. So that we're not um, simply um, critiquing the status quo or trying to expose religious hypocrisy, but we're also holding ourselves accountable to the witness that had uh, the witness that has sustained our lives from from yes. the times of, uh, of 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 landing on these shores. So yes. what? So what? Clearly, how you see your Bible will dictate your politics. And if hmm. someone has interpreted your Bible for you and you have not taken the time to sufficiently uh, scrutinize why it is you believe what you believe, then that's a problem. It, it, it's, a, it's a theological problem that um, there really isn't an excuse for. And so I think, you know, folks of your generation who are much more um, techno savvy and um, with it um, <laughs> are in many ways they ha- they have to kind of assume an eldering role um, if our uh, church if the church is to survive. Hmm. So what does that look like? I, I don't think we know. <laughs> I, 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 I right. really don't think we know what it looks like, but it it does look like. Uh, something more authentic. It does look like something that's going to uh, make prosperity theologians look more suspect than they already hmm. already do wow. to uh, millennials and folk in my generation. Um, hmm. So when one is able to expose the anemia of of black churchianity, then hmm. um, uh, then I think healing can take place if we are to salvage what um, is good or what are the best, what might be considered the best practices of black religious practice. Uh, hmm. So uh, I think I think it takes persons like you, like me, um, shaped and um, 
um, critical, uh, if you will, of our own um, tradition that will mm-hmm. that will lead that will lead in a mm-hmm. pedago- pedagogical sense. Now that doesn't mean that we're going to be the next Al Sharptons or Jesse Jacksons, right? But um, we will be, I think, those who are developing coalitions of of uh, concern and reform. Wow, that is such a good word, Dr. Gilbert. I, I can't let you get out of here without talking about your new book, Exodus Preaching. Yeah. And I recently uh, just received your book, A Pursued Justice. Okay. And in, in that book, I'm, I'm so ready to dive into that. Um, it's one of those funny things that when you get into this, you get down this rabbit hole of, of preaching books. Right. And, uh, you know, some are history, some are, are practical, some are reflective. And so you have a you have kind of a line of books that you need to read uh, that are kind of sitting on your shelf. It's so that's kind of how I feel right now. But I've pushed a pursuit justice close as close to the top as I can um, so that I can dive in. And I'm so looking forward to it. And then you're getting ready to come out with another book. So I have to put that somewhere at the top right. as well. But I'd love to hear you talk about Exodus Preaching and you can also share a little bit about a pursued justice sure. as well. Um, you may want to share about that first, and then and then your new book, which will be coming right, out soon. Right. So you know, um, an author who is an academic has to be always mindful of readership. And so, as a, a, mm-hmm. again, that first book kind of created a space for me to develop kind of a triangular um, um, way of kind of allowing these various scriptural images of prophet, priest, and sage to speak. And so the first lens or the first dimension that I have focused on with a pursued justice is the uh, prophetic dimension. And so um, to be mm. quite honest with you, you know, anyone in pursuit of tenure, when you publish with a university press, um, that bodes well for, um, your academic career. So, right, um, right. So, so that book is the heart of the researcher Kenyatta. <laughs> but, um, ah. but I hmm. felt like um, that book was not sufficient to kind of uh, highlight the the practical ministry preacher pedagogical Kenyatta in. in in that sense. So mm. Exodus preaching is a slimmer vi- volume um, bearing the same kind of themes, bearing out the same themes, but hoping to be more of a, uh, a, a working manual so that so that right. a person like you will pick it up and say, no, you know, I can read this in several ways. I can use it um, as a practical resource to, you know, either read it straight through, pick it up, read a chapter look at some sermons. And so I, what I, what I do is I, I, you know, in my introduction, which is more of a theory um, grounding the book. And then um, throughout the book, I have crafting strategies and techniques that I uh, think have been helpful uh, to me and um, strategies that um, some of the um, most uh, creative and imaginative African-American preachers and homileticians have brought uh, brought to the surface. And so um, this is not just about me. This is about kind of giving the reader um, some sense of, of these emerging voices that are doing great work mm. 
Um, and then I have, you know, sections throughout, um, which I call th- thorns and thistles. Those things kind of have to be hmm. alert to um, when you're preaching the whole council of scriptures, for, ex- for example, if you're going to preach the conquest narratives. And there are certain things you have to be mm-hmm. attentive to, um, you know, clearly, you know, ethno ethnocentrism, favoritism. Yes. Um, all, yes. You know, um, kind of um, genocide. All of that is in the text and you have to figure out a way to interpret and preach that. So I just I have a preaching caution section in it. And then I just feature a mm. number of sermons that um, bear certain marks that uh, align with uh, the four characteristic marks of prophetic preaching, which is, you know, it unmasks systemic evil and deceptive human practices um, by means of moral suasion and subversive rhetoric. It remains hopeful when confronted with human tragedy and communal despair, connects the speech act with just actions, um, and it carries an impulse Hmm. for beauty in its uh, of language and wow. culture. So, you know, from that paradigm, I've been able to uh, tease out, um, I think are some, some helpful, helpful hints for the person who is um, trying to understand preaching, what it means to preach prophetically and, and to actually shape sermons that, that speak to justice and hope. Wow. That's so good. Dr. Gilbert, I am looking forward to, opening that up and reading that and using that as a resource. And I'm looking forward to the next books. I know you've already thought probably five, six books ahead um, with things that you would love to, to write and to express. And I just want to thank you for what you have done and what you continue to do in training up um, leaders within our context and being a voice within our context and, and outside of our context as well. Um, there are many of us who look up to you and appreciate your contributions and uh, may the Lord give you, you many more years doing this um, and many more students and many more uh, classes uh, that can build up the church. So thank you again, Dr. Gilbert. Thank you so much, Tyler. I appreciate it. And thanks for having me on. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.